Hello there. This is the Crunchy Christian Podcast, a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network. I am a master herbalist, aromatherapist, author, speaker, blogger, and veteran homeschooling mama of four. You can learn more about how I can equip you to pursue God's best naturally at my website, julienaturally.com. And now, today's show. Hey, everybody, it's Julie on Crunchy Christian Podcast, where we talk about all things green and growing that God gave us. Today, we're continuing our Herb Garden series with time and not like time to get going, but with time, the herb time, the T-H-Y-M-E time. And in the Latin, that is known as thymus vulgaris. And we'll talk a little bit about where that name came from. So we know it as garden time. It was also uh, wild time. It grew wild uh, in parts of Europe and uh, northern Africa and Asia Minor and that kind of thing too. So it goes all the way back to ancient Egyptians who would use it in their mummification process along with some other herbs. And an interesting fact about the way that the Egyptians thought about Uh, herbs is that they thought that scent was equated with holiness. So if you smelled good and if your body smelled good, even in death, that was considered pure and holy. And that's not really all that far off. Uh, Noxious smells are associated with uh, bad germs growing, so it's not it's not entirely off. Um, they also use thyme as a pain reliever, which is an interesting use, and we'll learn more about uh, that later. Whether or not that was uh, a good use of thyme, but they probably use the wild thyme. Uh, which does not have as much of the active constituents and doesn't smell quite as strongly as the garden thyme, which is a cultivated version. Because the wild thyme comes from the mountains of Spain and other Mediterranean countries, such as I mentioned already. And, you know, the Egyptians might have traded with um, some of the other nations of the area, but you know, Egypt is in northern Africa, so it might have grown wild around there, even um, in some of the more fertile areas, uh, because of how time grows and the kind of soil that it likes, which we'll also get to in a minute. Well, we got a lot to look forward to. <laughs> um, so the name time, vulgaris, uh, comes from a Greek word. So we're not really sure if it comes from a Greek word that means fumigate, as it was used that way, or the Greek word thumus or thumus, uh, which meant courage. 
They did use it as a sort of incense to clear the air or to fumigate a room. Kind of similar to how the Egyptians used it to clear the noxious bad smells of the dead and to make them smell nice to go into the afterlife. Um, But they also used it as a source of invigorating courage. They, (laughs) They really felt that it made people more courageous and and uh and lively so virgil talks about the use of time as a fumigator and pliny also talked about time as a herb that would put to flight all venomous creatures so Again, uh, clearing the air of noxious smells. Others have said that time was associated with grace and elegance. And that if someone said that you smelled of time, it was considered a compliment. I don't know. I mean, time does smell nice, but I don't know if it smells that nice, to be honest. They didn't really use it as a culinary herb the way that we use it today or that uh, cultures used it later. But the Romans did use it to flavor cheese. And the Romans would also chew it uh, just before a meal to protect themselves from poison. So again, that association with clearing out the bad stuff. And because of this, it would become a favorite among emperors as a way to, you know, make sure that nobody was poisoning the emperor. So the idea that time invoked courage, it lived on into the Middle Ages, and uh, the ladies would embroider into their scarves a little bee that would be hovering over a sprig of time. And they would give these scarves to their favored knights, believing that uh, time would provoke courage in them. And that was a long tradition. And um, the Romans continued in their belief, of course, for quite a while, their belief in time as being able to ward off poison. And that belief persisted into the Middle Ages, so much so that when the Black Death came in the late 1340s, millions of people would turn to time to relieve their troubles, their sores, and uh, to also try to protect themselves from getting sick. They would put the herb into little packets that they would put around their neck. They would uh, include it in a lot of remedies and just carrying it around like a charm, hoping that it would protect them from the plague. Then, as time went on, during the Victorian era, so here we're moving forward a few hundred years, You know, it was kind of a romantic, fanciful time, and they added some additional things to time that, well, you know, are really very imaginative. (laughs) So they added some non-medical ideas to what time symbolized and what it meant. I mean, other than, of course, that the courage thing that I mentioned, 
they believed that if you saw a patch of wild thyme growing in the woods, that a bunch of fairies had recently been dancing there. And so little girls believing that this you know, little tale uh, would go into the woods and camp out near little plots of creeping thyme, hoping to catch a glimpse of these little fairies dancing around. Of course, that's, you know, very fanciful and, uh, you know, I wonder how many of them thought they saw something <laughs> dancing around on those uh, little mounds of wild thyme. Uh, but Victorian time, in Victorian times, they would still use time for some of those medicinal things that we talked about that the ancients had used it for. They would um, put time in water and like make like a tea with it, and they would bathe rags in that before using them on wounds. So still the idea of using time to ward off illness uh, persisted. And uh, dentists would use some constituents of time to treat oral abscesses, inflammation, and as an antiseptic for root canals. So they would still use it to ward off illness and disease, but also starting to bring in some other possible uses. So let's talk a little bit about growing time. And because the, a lot of these uses, especially among the ancients, were wild time. And the ones that are used now, and probably in the Victorian era, maybe even in the Middle Ages, uh, because, of course, the Middle Ages, monks grew time in their gardens, and they would use time in cooking as well as medicinally. Uh, because a lot of the ancient knowledge was preserved by monks, by the church, uh, which I just love that, um, that all that knowledge was preserved by the church and passed along and uh, used, unearthed and used again uh, when people were a little bit more open-minded about that and uh, stopped persecuting uh, women for practicing herbalism. So let's talk a little bit about how it grows. So it is a small, somewhat woody plant. It's not like a bush, but the uh, stems are kind of fibrous and woody. They're, they're not like really fleshy kind of stems. It's a little bit like that. And they it doesn't grow very tall, only usually about eight inches or so sometimes not even that tall. It does occasionally grow to a foot, but most of the time it stays right around the six to eight inches. So it, it really is kind of like that low growing kind of plant. Uh, it generally has small green gray leaves. Depending on the variety, you may get slightly larger leaves. Um, some varieties aren't as fragrant as others. So it, you have to just kind of check on that which one you're getting. It has small purplish flowers, and of course, it's very fragrant. You can smell that from a little ways off, kind of like peppermint. It is an herb that you can grow indoors in the window because it, it doesn't get 
like super huge, like a basil plant does. It likes a dry, light soil, not super moist. If it's too moist, you would probably kill it. It really prefers kind of poor soil. Think about it, it grows in the mountains it, uh, and in rather dry kind of places. So it also likes to grow with lavender. So you could plant them close together and they're like plant friends. Uh, you probably don't think about that, but you know, that concept of companion planting, it, it embraces the idea that plants do in fact have friends. <laughs> I like to think about it that way. Plants have friends and uh, when they are together, they help each other to grow better and, um, and keep away pests and things like that. So a friend of, of time is lavender. So if you grow them outside, plant them together and they will help each other. It is a perennial. So if you are growing it outdoors, you're going to want to overwinter it so that it will come back the next year nice and vibrant and um, that it doesn't uh, suffer too much as the, you know, with the roots and everything in the wintertime. So you will need to kind of create kind of like a soil berm around it and, and uh, protect it for the winter. Now, and oh, and also think about the native countries where it comes from. And that will also tell you that, you know, those tend to be very warm places, kind of warm coastal regions. So you do want to keep that in mind that that's where it grows natively. So that's why you want to overwinter it also, because um, you want to keep it so it doesn't uh, freeze, the roots don't freeze over. So modern research uh, that we've been able to dig in a little bit more into time and what's in time and does it have the chemical constituents and things that would show that these traditional uses are legitimate or if, you know, some people may have, you know, I mean, the idea that it invokes courage is interesting, <laughs> but Obviously, people used it to ward off disease because they saw that it did, in fact, do that. And now we know a little bit more to find out, well, what what is it about time that allows it to do that? So it does have a um, an essential oil component to it, and that is what gives it its strong smell. And that is the part that is the most prominent chemical in it. Essential oils and plants are far more complex than just one chemical constituent that acts on anything, but it it is helpful to us to understand that there are chemicals in there that do have action that people have researched and found in a lab that that have specific activity. And uh, that helps us to understand the other activities as well, that it works synergistically with the other components in the plant. So thyme has antiseptic, antispasmodic, tonic, and carminative qualities. You can use a whole herb. As I mentioned, some of the ancients, they use it like a tea, 
um, of course. And of course, you can season food with it. And it can and was used to help preserve meats and things for a little while. So it was used that way. It has seems to have an affinity for the respiratory tract. So it has been used for whooping cough traditionally, sore throat, congestion, colic, fever, gout, sciatica, interestingly, leprosy, mouthwash, because it does have that antiseptic quality, and to kill parasites, which makes sense. And sometimes it's been made into an ointment that helps get rid of swellings and warts. And believe it or not, people would sometimes smoke it as an herbal tobacco, and that seemed to help with digestion, headaches, and interestingly, sleepiness. Can ward off insects, of course. You know, the smell is disagreeable to some insects, uh, just like some of the other plants who have a strong smell. It's disagreeable. It comes in different types, though. You may not know that thyme essential oil, there's not just one type of thyme essential oil. There's actually like four or five different types of thyme oil. And each one has slightly different qualities in terms of how caustic it is to the skin and the level of activity towards bacteria and parasites and things like that. Some of the varieties are a little bit better in terms of antiviral activity, and they all have some level of antibacterial properties. So one of the types is the, is the caustic thymol type, and that's the one you cannot put on your skin, and it also has the strong very broad anti-infective uses. Uh, And then the mildest type is the geraniol type. So it doesn't have as much of the active thymol. Instead, it has uh, an active geraniol type of chemical in it. And that is, it's very, that one is much milder. And that also has broad antimicrobial in addition, antifungal and antiviral actions. So how do you get all these different types of thyme from the same plant? Because it's still garden thyme. This is an interesting thing that uh, I'm going to share with you is that <laughs> it matters where the plant is grown because the plant will produce a slightly different chemical profile based on where it's grown and the environmental conditions there. So yeah, it it matters. and, uh, And that's an important thing to keep in mind when you're growing it. And also when you purchase essential oils, you need to ask a little bit more about that. Well, which type of time is it? Because that will determine how effective it's going to be and in different situations and also all, whether or not it's safe to use on your skin. So I'm going to share with you a little bit of research that's been done just within the past few years that shows some other possible 
uh, uses for time that have never been used before, but there's been some experiments done recently with, you know, mice and rats and things like that. So a recent review of scientific literature shows that thyme essential oil shows promise for anti-cancer. Interesting, right? It, that's, not, that's not been used that way before. And we mentioned, I mentioned that it has been used as a mouthwash, but it can also have some promise as a treatment or as a supplementary thing for oral cancer. And it also shows promise in helping to control rheumatoid arthritis when it's combined with nicotine. And that was published in a 2019 study in Life Sciences. So there are other possibilities for time. We'll see what happens with that as time goes on. (laughs) It also, in another 2019 study, you know, some of the... um, antibiotics that are used are no longer effective because, of course, bacteria mutate. They want to survive. They want to live. And so they will mutate and they mutate very quickly so that they survive. They're organisms that want to live. And many of our antibiotics are no longer effective in, in some of the worst cases of bacterial infections. And one of those is MRSA. Well, this 2019 study, it's not the life sciences one that I just mentioned, it's a different study in 2019, was done, did some experiments with the MRSA bacteria and thymol uh, in uh, time. And it showed some promise as, as using time to help with that kind of infection, which is really rough uh, and is a problem in hospital settings. So that's another thing to keep in mind is, is that the ancients were right in using it for getting rid of poisons and bad smells and all venomous creatures that it really is effective for those things, infectious types of agents, and even more than just the bacteria. Just be careful in the early stages of pregnancy with time uh, because it does have some abortifacient qualities. And if you are on a medication called uh, doxorubicin, uh, it's an anti-tumor agent. If you're on that, also be careful about time because it may interact with the drugs. So you may want to talk to your doctor about that. And that's all that I have for you today. So you have a wonderful, blessed day. And we will see you next week. God bless. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Show notes for today's broadcast can be found at crunchychristianpodcast.com. Hit the subscribe button now so you can join me next week. Until then, remember all you need is God, people, and growing things. God bless. God bless.